0: Greetings to you. Good morning to you. I hope you had a good night's sleep last night. If you didn't, maybe this presentation can help you with your sleep a little bit. Just try not to snore if you don't mind. Gentlemen, we are in John's first epistle. And if you have an ESV study Bible, we're going to be on page 2430. And uh, we've seen how important this epistle is. John is writing it sometime in the latter part of the first century. He's writing because, as we saw last week, there's there's a famous heretic in Ephesus, which is the center point of where John was ministering at this time in his life. And uh, this heretic was a, sort of a forerunner of what we later came to know as Gnosticism. And he was basically saying that Jesus Christ only appeared to come in the flesh. He didn't really come in the flesh. That's known as docetism from the Greek word "dokeo," which means to appear. That Jesus only appeared to be the incarnation of the deity. And he wasn't really the incarnation of deity because we all know that's impossible. And furthermore then, uh, along with God never even contemplating coming into flesh, which would be an outrageous abomination, not only that, but he does not even consider our flesh that important. And therefore, the sins of the flesh are not that important. As long as your life's going forward the way you want, Uh, As long as your mind is seeking the deity, you're fine, said Serenthus the heretic. And furthermore, uh, the way that you treat your neighbor also wasn't all that important. Well, John takes all that on. And he's doing two things with this letter. The first one's obvious because he states it at the end of the letter. These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing largely to Christians that they may know how to gain assurance of their relationship with God. But at the same time, he's also with the cutting edge, slicing up Corinthianism and saying those people aren't believers. So at the same time he's showing you how you know you are a believer, he's showing you by those same standards these folks over here who claim to be believers are not. So he's attacking presumption at the same time that he's trying to strengthen genuine faith. And both those things always go together. The truth cuts on both sides all the time. The truth encourages us, and the truth warns the unbeliever at the same time. You see that clearly in John's epistle. Now, we didn't mention this last time, but let me show you roughly how this letter unfolds. Uh, This is not an easy letter to outline. I don't know if you've ever tried to outline 1 John, but it's a little bit like trying to outline the Proverbs. You know, It just doesn't outline very well first uh, John's not quite that difficult, but it is difficult because you get repetitions. And you're thinking, what? How would you outline this thing? He just goes from one thing to the next and in repetitious order. Uh, now, remember we said there were three primary tests that we apply to ourselves that actually assure us in our faith. The first one's a doctrinal test. Do you really believe that Jesus came and it was... The second person of the Trinity who came in the flesh. Do you believe that? Well, that should bolster your confidence because that's a sign of faith. The second uh, test was a moral test. That is, are you walking according to the Word of God? Not perfectly, but sincerely and repentantly. If you are, that's a sign of your belonging to God. And then there, there is the uh, social test. That is, do you love your neighbor? Do you love your brother in Christ? as you do yourself. Well, if you do, that too is a sign of assurance. At the same time, if you're not doing those things then and, and following the heresies of Serenthus, you can know that you're out. You're not in, you're out because these tests would show you that. In other words, John is saying these, this is the dividing line. Now in First John, what he does, he cycles through these tests on several occasions. But if you read it more closely, you'll see it's kind of a conical or a cyclical. It's like going up a spiral staircase and you're going up levels, but you're spiraling. You're hitting floor two, floor three, floor four. And there are three major exhortations in John. And in those three exhortations, he generally covers all three tests. So you get the three tests and you get the three tests and you get the three tests in three successive Exhortations. I won't go through and show you where the breaks are, but at least I just want you to get the general idea of how 1 John is actually structured. And then you get to the end and we'll see some other threes. Uh, he has a three concluding exhortations. He has three witnesses by which we can know the truth and so on. I'll show you that in chapters five, in chapter five. But generally speaking, we're going up a spiral staircase, but we are hitting different floors but he's emphasizing three things every time. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test for our faith. Now, what we're going to do today is we're picking up with uh, the, the... intro. We're still in the introductory portion. We covered the, what we might call the preface last week, verses 1 through 4. Now, we're going to go into what, uh, what we'll see are basically is an introductory statement about how we view sin in general. And John is going to take on some false statements that we believe were being made by Serenthus and others. And he's going to show the negation of these things as it has to do with sin. And I find these extremely helpful for the 21st century because we've got all kinds of confusions around us about what sin is and who's a sinner and how we deal with it. And sometimes even in our own minds as believers, if you're a believer this morning, uh, you have confusions too. John will really help us with that. How do we Uh, relate uh, to sin. Thus, the title of our our presentation today is Dealing with Sin. How do you deal with it? He's going to, we're going to deal with this first part where he deals with sin, and then we're going to just launch into the first part of this first exhortation, one of those three major exhortations of his epistle. Well, let's pick up then with verse 5. We've just completed the preface in which he shows us that Christ is the eternal life and that He, the Apostle, is proclaiming what He has personally witnessed. So our faith is based on, of course, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit within us, but it is based on history, on fact, on things that really happened in this world. And John said, I saw it, I heard it, I touched it with my own hands, the word of life, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. So our faith is based on Credible testimony of multiple people with the highest of character, uh, from a logical point of view. Now let's go to verse five. Then we're going to read all the way through two six. This first major sermon uh, that I referred to begins with two three, but we're going to, But it's it's uh, you know our ESV doesn't outline it in the same way, so we're going to just launch right on from one five to two six and see what we can learn this morning. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to, him, uh, come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, the first thing we want to observe in verses 5 through 7 is that true believers walk in the light. True believers walk in the light. Now, here's why. In verse 5a on our outline, God Himself is light. John says, this is the message we have heard from Him, and this is the message we're proclaiming to you. This is what we've been saying to you all along. We've been proclaiming God. When you think about what is the big subject of preaching, let me tell you, the big subject of preaching is God. That's who we're talking about. And John says, from the very beginning, when we started talking to you about God and proclaiming God to you, we told you He's a God of perfect light. There's no darkness in Him at all. You say, well, that's, that's obvious, isn't it? No, it's not. There are a lot of theologies all around the world where God has darkness and light in Him. I mean, even if you take the Islamic view of Allah, Allah can be shrewd. Allah can be a little tricky. And, of course, we all become like our God, don't we, eventually? And so we have to be very careful that we get our theology right because the character of the God that you believe in eventually becomes your own character. And so, and there were some ancient pagan gods that were seen to be both good and evil and they would war with each other. And the pagan gods were capricious. So there was light and darkness in the deities in a lot of people's minds. If you go to India with all their gods, you're continually trying to manipulate the Hindu gods to give you what you want. And it's just co-manipulation. These gods can't be trusted and you can't be trusted either, but you manipulate them with your offerings. And John said we can proclaim to God who's totally different from all of that, in whose purity you can trust. He cannot be manipulated and He's not crooked. He's not even, we wouldn't call Him shrewd. He's predictable because He tells you what He's going to do and He gives you His character and He never wavers from it. He's not capricious. He said, that's the God, the God who exists that we proclaim to you from the beginning. So when someone comes to you with some fancy theology that brings the very character of God into question, you should know something's wrong with that theology. If someone suggests a God who's not all-powerful, you should know right away there's something wrong with that theology. If someone suggests to you a God who doesn't have control or a God who hasn't made up His mind yet or a God who's not perfectly holy or a God who's not responsible he can't help Himself, some things just happen. You should know, that's a rat and I can smell it a mile away. Something's wrong with that God. It's not the God of the Bible. And John says, from the very beginning, we proclaim to you a God in whom there's no darkness at all. He's light. And so if you would know Him, you've got to be in the light. Uh, look at B, verse 1-6, you've got to walk in the light because He's in the light. He is the light. So fellowship with God requires walking in the light. He says in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. So he says it's really obvious. You cannot live a sneaky, shrewd little life yourself and then tell me that you know God. You can't be unfaithful to your wife and then tell me that you have an intimate relationship with God. That's just being completely presumptuous. You're walking in darkness. Maybe you're a Christian you're kind of walking in the shadows. Well, fine, but don't tell me that you're having an intimate experience with God at the same time. So you see, at the very same time that the Bible assures Christians of our relationship with God, it also strips away all the presumption of human machinations that want to make God after our own image. And that's what we do. If we're not converted to the truth, then what you're going to do, you're going to realize there is a deity out there somewhere, and you're going to kind of construct that deity to be tame, a deity with whom you can get along, a deity that shares with a few of your little peccadillos, a, a, a deity that, that will look favorably upon your particular sins and who judges on the curve, and all these other kinds of ways that you create the God you can get along with. And John says, from the very beginning, we told you this God is not like you. He's perfect light. And if you want fellowship with Him, you've got to come out into the light. And come out of the darkness, come out into the light. Now you can know Him. So these people who tell you they're the intelligentsia, they're very well trained, they've taken all the courses, they've read the Bible four times, and they've got a great relationship with God, and they're not walking according to His Word, forget it. They're a bunch of liars. John's not pulling any punches here. He says they're just flat liars. And so you need to know yourself. When are you hearing the truth and when are you not hearing it? And it has to do with light and what it requires to know it. Now notice that he says here at the beginning of verse 6, if we say... Well, you'll also see that in verses 8 and 10. And what he's taking on is the things that Serenthus was saying or that the heretics were saying or that the, the liberals were saying. He's saying, if we say what they're saying, then let's, let's look at this. And he says, if we say that we have fellowship with God or we walk in the darkness, we're lying. So I have to say to you, if someone's out there and they say, well, we know God just as well as you do, And we believe that sexual morality has been highly uh, overestimated. And uh, people who think that their gender comes from a creator uh, are really being just narrow-minded fundamentalists. You can create your own genderism. You can be what you want to be. I'm telling you, if they deny walking according to the will of God revealed in the Scriptures, they're lying about their relationship with God. They don't have the relationship they're claiming to have. So you just smell a rat. Now you, you, may, you won't be able to convince most people and it's not your job to take on an argument with every single person who's confused, but it is our job to help them. And so if someone wants to be led to Christ, to a true knowledge of God, you must lead them out into the light. So you can't, you can't be an instrument of, uh, of confusion to people in the world. You can't pat them on the back on the road to hell. So if you know someone is self-deceived and confused and they're willing to be helped, you've got to help them come out into the light because they cannot have a relationship with the living God who is perfect light and then be living in the darkness. It's impossible. So love demands that you stick to the truth and at least in your own heart, if you don't have the opportunity to influence someone or to have a nice debate with someone, at least in your heart carry the burden of their condition and pray for them and let your heart be broken for them because they're self-deceived, as we'll see, he says, on other occasions. So if we want fellowship with God, we must come into the light. Look with me at several verses. Let's go back to the Psalms. Look at uh, Psalm 5, for example. Uh, This is on page 946. And here you have a Psalm of David. And he says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So David, you know, 3,000 years ago is saying, this I know about God. He is light. Now, light in the script is, a, uh, is a common uh, analogy for the deity in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And light suggests two things in the Bible. Number one, it has an intellectual element of representing the truth. So, light represents truth. Darkness represents a lie. Secondly, light represents a moral principle. Light represents purity and darkness represents corruption. And so, John is saying that God is light. That He is perfect truth and He is perfect uh, purity, moral purity. Turn to me also to uh, Psalm 66. And notice that the psalmist here says something similar to what John is saying. This is on page 1016 in your ESV study Bible. In verse uh, 18, he says, If I had cherished iniquity, this is sixty-six eighteen, 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So he's talking about prayer and he says, God hears words, but He doesn't listen as one who's engaging with my prayer if I cherish evil in my heart. So if I'm being hypocritical uh, and praying long prayers, those prayers are not even heard effectively. Uh, You know, Peter puts it this way. He says, if you're harsh with your wife, it will impede your prayers. Do you understand this? I mean, if we're immoral in not dealing uh, gentlemanly in a gentlemanly way with our wives, our prayers are impeded. You want to know why your prayers are not answered? Well, look around maybe. So you must come out into the light. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. doesn't mean that we're sinless. It means that we're transparently repentant, that we're allowing the truth of the Scriptures to open up our hearts and reveal to us what's there, and then with in, with in, in sincere endeavor... After new obedience, we turn our lives back over to the Lord. That's walking in the light. So repentance is necessary to enjoy intimate relationship with God. Look at Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. This is page 1347. And Isaiah says a similar thing. Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, Or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, this is God's people, this is Israel, this is the church. And Isaiah, the preacher, is saying to the church, God is not hearing the church's prayers because of your unrepentant sin. So the church has to be in repentance all the time in order for us corporately as well as individually in our families to enjoy fellowship with God. That's what's being said here. So you can see the test applies to assure our hearts, but the test also applies to reveal areas in our own lives of which we need to repent. So fellowship with God requires walking in the light. Then see, look at verse one, one, uh, at, uh, verse 7. Fellowship of believers requires walking in the light. But if we walk in the light... So you'll see he says, if we say this, then this. But if we do this, then this. And he's doing this three times. He's taking three things that are being said among his church people that are falsehoods. And he's challenging them. And all these falsehoods have to do with sin. And if you think you can just keep sinning and live in the dark and presumptively have a, presumptuously have a relationship with God, you've got another thought coming. And he says, but look, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, you would expect him to say, we have fellowship with the living God. But he doesn't. He says, we have fellowship with one another. So the first consequence of walking in the light is that you have real fellowship with other brothers who are walking in the light. Real fellowship with men who are walking in the light is not ultimately accomplished by sitting at the same table with them in a Bible study. Real fellowship with men who are following Jesus comes from your following Jesus. Then you have real fellowship with other men. If you're wondering why sometimes you find fellowship difficult, it could be because of the nerd factor in the church. I get that. But it also could be, it could be that you're not walking in the light and therefore you really get a little squirmy when you get around godly men. That's what John is saying. If you walk in the light... You will have family intimacy with men who love God. And you can tell. If you have that kind of intimacy, it probably is because you are in the light. If you don't, or if, you, if you're not walking in the light, you should not expect that kind of fellowship. And then secondly, he says, And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us from all sin. So look, here's the, here's the strange thing. We've actually, we are sinners. No, no Christian ever ceases to be a sinner. Billy Graham is a dirty, rotten sinner, and he's walking in the light. That's strange. But he's walking in the light because he's doing so repentantly. He's aware of his own unworthiness. He's continually repenting of it. That brings him into the light. Being in the light, then, he has this assurance that all of his dirty, rotten sins, including the ones this morning when he woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, are all cleansed, not just forgiven. You get the wording here? Washed away as though they didn't exist at all. They're off His record. He's cleansed. He's purged of those sins because He chose fellowship with God. Wow! That's an amazing reality. And I realize if you're not a Christian this morning, it's very hard to believe that happens. But those of us who are Christians, that's the only reason we're Christians. It's because God is taking care of our sin and washing it away when we come into the light. So you come into the light repentantly and you may come trembling because you know what a bad sinner you are. You're wondering what will this God do? He's not only truthful and pure, He's awesome in power. He destroys things. He could destroy me. But you come out trusting Him. And He cleanses you. And your conscience is cleansed. Your life is cleansed. And you experience His love as though you had never sinned. That's what it means to be out here in the light. Come on, gentlemen. Come out into the light. You know, we were singing a moment ago, trust and obey. Think about these first words. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. He abides with us. We live with Him. We walk with Him. And we come into the light, that's where He is in the light. So come on out and have fellowship with Him. Trust and obey. I remember some years ago when I was in my 30s, I used to be in a Bible study with a bunch of old guys. They were my age. And I was the only... Uh, yeah, well, don't laugh. You're, you're older than you think. Uh, and so... Uh, I, was, I was in my 30s, but I was having a Bible study with these old guys, and the, the devotion would rotate around, you know? So everybody give about a 15-minute devotional every Friday morning at Shoney's. And so uh, it, it, it got to be Ralph's turn. And uh, of course, uh, you know, we all blame preachers for talking too long, but you know what? When you get the microphone, you talk longer than we do. Have you ever noticed that? So we have these 15-minute devotions that often turn into 30 minutes, but Ralph... He was in charge of devotions that morning. He said, well, here are my devotions. Trust and obey. Everybody just sat there like you are, just looking at him, okay? And he said, no, I I just gave it to you. Trust and obey. That's it. (laughs) That that was the devotion for the day. That was the most famous devotion I ever heard in my life. Three (laughs) words, trust and obey. And obviously, I never forgot it, did I? (laughs) Think about that. Preachers ought to preach a little bit shorter, a little bit more poignant. Trust and obey. We could, we could leave on those words. Of course, you know I'm a preacher, we ain't gonna leave on those words. But if you're gonna remember three words, if you're gonna remember three words from today, that's it. Trust and obey. There's the whole thing. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust him and obey him. And if you trust him, you will obey him. And if you're obeying him, the only reason you're obeying him is because you trust him. Those two things go together. That's the way that you have an intimate relationship with Him. Trust Him. All of His promises and obey Him. So, that's what John is saying. Don't let people take you off this simple biblical track of trusting the Lord who is in the light and obeying every word. Now, let's look at verse 8. He's going to take on a second. He's going to to refute a second heresy. The The first heresy was that you could walk comfortably with God and keep on sinning and going your own way. That's the first heresy he's refuting. The second heresy is the heresy that says we don't really have any sin. That once, once you really come to know God through this enlightenment process that Serenthus and other pre-Gnostics were uh, uh, averring, uh, you, you, you just have, you, you're delivered from the sins of the body. And look what John says about it in verse 8. If we say... If we say, here's another heresy, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he said, if they say they can walk with God and not be in the light, they're liars. Now, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar too. So he's saying we've got to deal with this issue of sin, even as believers. And this is so important. You know, we've we've had groups over the past couple of hundred years in Protestantism and some people who are still confused about this thinking that you can be entirely sanctified. In fact, that was the word, entire sanctification. Christian perfectionism used to be the word in the earlier part of the 20th century. And it's, it's as though you have the second experience of grace that lifts you up beyond all sin. Well, when you dig into it, you find in order to maintain that viewpoint and have even any semblance of rationality about you, you've got to redefine what sin is. And that's exactly what they did. They said, these entire perfectionists were saying, well, sin is doing something intentionally against God. Oh, so I didn't intend to be rough with my wife. I just verbally was. So, but I didn't intend it, so it wasn't a sin. Well, now there you go. You redefine sin. But if you'll stick with sin the way the Bible defines it, as any transgression of the law of God, Okay, now you can see you're not entirely perfect, are you? Far from it. So Christians are not perfect. We are repentant. And he's saying, if you say you have no sin, you simply uh, are yourself deceived. Now, most of us in this room have read enough Bible or heard other people talk about the Bible enough to know that we're sinners. Especially if you're a Southerner. I mean, we say it all the time. You know, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. We're real humble in our verbiage. Not so much in our practice, but in our verbiage. So uh, we, we know everybody's a sinner. We got that down doctrinally. But here's where we come to denial. It has to do with our specific sins. Honey, did you take out the trash? Oh, you forgot to tell me. What's, she's supposed to tell you every Monday afternoon that the trash is picked up on Tuesday morning? You know, we, we have all these defense mechanisms. So there's a spirit of denying sin in all of us, we all are in denial to some degree or another. Some of us have some profound psychological issues and our friends have tried to break through with us. And sometimes these psychological issues have embedded in them the very tendency to deny that we've got the issue. It's amazing how many of these there are. And trying to break through spiritually uh, with a person who is in denial about his own anger problem his own greed his own narcissism a lot of issues uh, it's very very difficult to help that person if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and we're liars there's a form of lying that even christian men can participate in day after day is simply denying what's obvious to everybody else that we've got a problem so the The Christian who wants to walk in intimacy with God is a man who has to be transparent, has to be willing to listen and to learn, even about himself, from other people. Notice that he says in verse 9, though, Look, on the other side of this coin, if you'll confess your sins, if we confess our sins, then what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wow, what a promise. Now, I want you to look with me at Proverbs chapter 28. And... As, as long ago as the life of Solomon, these truths were obvious. In uh, Proverbs 28, verse 13, Solomon says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will t- obtain mercy. So if you hide these things, you don't confess them. If you've got a pornography problem and it's just your little secret and you think nobody notices, I'm telling you, you're walking in the darkness. You need to come out in the light. You need to confess this. You need to get professional help. Ted Baltic's right over here, Christian Psychological Center. He's an expert on those kinds of issues. Get help. Bring it out into the light. You don't have to tell everybody, but tell somebody that you can trust. Bring that issue out into the light. And get help and confess. And then notice what Solomon says. He he says, those who confess and forsake. So you're not just verbally saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. You're saying, I have sinned in a particular way. I need to repent. I want your help to help me turn this ship around. That's walking in the light. But it begins with confession and honest acknowledgement of your failings. An honest acknowledgement of your transgressions. You can't begin to help a patient, you physicians, until they'll acknowledge that your diagnosis is at least somewhere close to the truth. And then they'll agree to the surgery or the medication or the change of habit that they need. And it's the same way spiritual. You can't get help unless you're willing to look at a, a reasonable diagnosis and own that diagnosis and then do something about it. Look at Psalm 32. This, of course, is David And you see, uh, of course, he had a lot to (laughs) ask forgiveness for, didn't he? He got into all kinds of trouble. We're all blessed, not only by by David's good deeds, but we're especially blessed by his bad ones, I think. We're encouraged that we're not left behind. But he says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So when I didn't confess, I was holding all this junk inwardly, just trying to deal with it in the darkness, in the shadows. I was groaning. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David was losing his strength, his moral and spiritual strength. As he just kept quiet about these dark things in his life. And they were very dark. But then look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And that includes Nathan the prophet, the preacher, who came to him. So David had a spiritual counselor who talked to him about his adultery and his murder. And he said, I did not cover my iniquity. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then look at this line. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave all the darkness, all the offense, all the ugliness, all the corruption of my sin. You completely canceled it. And that's what God does. That's how gracious He is. Will you trust Him? Just trust Him. He can take anything in your life and forgive it and cleanse it. Now, notice the language also in verse 9. This is very significant. Uh, John says, he is faithful to forgive you. Why? What does he mean he's faithful? Well, he's faithful to his covenant promises. He's faithful to what he said in the Old Testament, that he will forgive all your sins in the, in the covenant that he has with you, in Jeremiah 31. He promises to forgive us in the Old Testament. And so he's faithful to do that. Trust him. Trust, trust, trust. He said he would do it if you come to him honestly, he will do it. But then notice the next word. He's not only faithful, but he's just. And New Testament scholars have wondered, why didn't God why didn't John say gracious? He is faithful and gracious to forgive us our sins and to yeah. cleanse us. But here he says, God is just. Usually when we think of his justice, we're thinking of his the exercise of his wrath against sin. He's justly going to. Punish all sin. Why does He use the word justice? Uh, Here's why I think He does it. Because Jesus Christ has actually paid a real price. He's paid the full price that your sin has demanded. You could not pay that price yourself. Except with your own damnation. That's the only way you could pay for it. But when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, he actually died in the place of sinners. He actually died the death we should have died on the cross. And since he is God incarnate, his sacrifice is valuable not just for one other human being, but for an innumerable host of human beings, an infinite number of human beings, because of his infinite nature as God incarnate his sacrifice on the cross has infinite value so all of you come and take and when you do what you're taking is the value of a substitutionary sacrifice in your place therefore if this price has been paid if the sentence has been declared and the term has been served then the judge cannot rightly in justice demand that that payment be made twice. He would be unjust to punish you because He's already punished His Son for your sins. So God is just when He says that He's provided atonement on Calvary's cross for you. That means that all of His wrath that is due you is completely exhausted upon His Son for all of His people. There's no more wrath that justly can be placed against anyone who is in Christ and therefore whose payment has already been made. That's the reason for this word justice. It secures your salvation. Your salvation is not only based upon the sentiments of God, the affection of God, the love of God, and the grace and mercy of God. Your salvation is based upon his justice. He would not dare put a blemish on his own mark on his own uh, uh, character and unjustly punish someone twice for the same sin. Talk about double jeopardy. So that's what John is saying. Do you understand? He's faithful to his promises to you, but regardless of his promises to you, this God is just and he is in the light. He is pure. And He will never require payment twice for the same transgression. So that's how secure our salvation is. When you confess your sins, it's because you're in the light. And when you're in the light, as we saw in a previous verse, the blood of Christ cleanses you of your sin. You're trusting, you're obeying because you're trusting that this atonement, this payment has been fully made by another. And therefore now in freedom and joy, you're obeying. You don't obey in order to get off the hook. You obey because you're off the hook. That's the way it works. So he's saying he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and once again to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So look what he's doing. He's canceling your sin. It doesn't say so here, but he's also imputing to you The righteousness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. There's your perfection. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. You have that. We know that from other texts. And then he's saying he's cleansing you. Now, he's cleansing you in two ways. First of all, immediately upon faith in Christ, he cleanses your record. But secondly, progressively in life, he's cleansing your real moral life. Now, those of you who are 70 years old, you may say, well, I wish he'd get on with it. You know, I'm still dealing... You, you mentioned pornography a minute ago. I'm in my 70s. I still look at that every once in a while. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you is you're progressively being cleansed. You're better than you were when you're 50. Come on now. There's been, there's been some progress, maybe not as much as you wish. But there's the, the, general, the general mean, even though your life's going like this, the general mean is up like this. He's cleansing you gradually of these impurities. Now, you're still a long way from where you're going to be when He gets you home. There's going to be an ultimate sanctification when everything is burned off of you in a moment. And you are perfect. You are truly a perfect human being, Adam and Eve style, before the Lord. Wonderful. Now, though, there's this progressive development. And it's all because of the blood of Christ. He's, it's His blood that's enabled all this. Now, look at verse 10. See on your outline. Claims of sinless perfection make God a liar. Here again, he's saying, if we say. So here's the third, if we say. And he's saying, if we say we have not sinned. Now this is quite a claim, isn't it? This is a remarkable claim. that Somebody would say, well, I haven't sinned. You think, how could Serenthius be such an idiot? Well, maybe some presidential candidates read Serenthius. I don't know. But... There are people today who say, I've not sinned. or they kind of, if you ask them, do you ever need to repent of it?" Well, I don't know. Let me think. Let me think. There's a person who's just basically spiritually idiotic. Uh, you have to scratch your head. Now, come on, gentlemen. If I ask you, are you a sinner? You say, oh, let me give you a list. I say, okay, that's enough. That's enough. enough. Uh, so here John is saying, look, if we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar. And His Word couldn't possibly be in us. His Word. Why does He say that? Well, just think about this famous verse. In His Word. In the Old Testament that these men knew. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's from the Old Testament. So... In the Old Testament, it was really clear that that sin has suffused our lives and grieves us, and all of our lives. And our joy is the dominant expression for the, the follower of Christ. But the minor key is always there. Uh, Good Friday is always in our in our hearts. We can always feel that the the shame of the cross that Jesus had to bear on our account. Our sins were so bad that the only solution was that the deity had to come and become a man and die on a wooden tree for us. That's how bad we are. That's the minor key. It's always there. It's always part of our lives. It always leads us to humility. Nobody can get up on their high horse. So he says, if, if we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar because His, His Word says that we're sinners and His Word is not in us. What happens, for example, with Isaiah himself? In Isaiah chapter 6, when he's called to this ministry, how does it begin? It begins with a vision of a holy God. And the cherubim, seraphim sing three times, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the thresholds and the doorposts shook in His presence. And Isaiah didn't blame anybody else for a sinner. The only sinner he could think of in the presence of God was himself. And he said, woe is me. I am undone. I, Billy Graham, am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among the people who also have unclean lips. But Isaiah's first instinct in the presence of God is to be very aware of his own failings. And yes, he was forgiven. Yes, he was a man of God. But the minor key is always there when you're in the presence of God. You cannot walk in the light and not have a due sense of your natural fallenness that has been forgiven by the blood of Calvary. That's what... John is saying here now let's move on and notice in this in our third major section as we come now to the answer to that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 and that is that true believers trust in Christ's saving work so what do we do with all this sin John has been taking on the heresies that try to minimize sin and its import And you'll find the same thing with all liberal Protestantism, if I could keep picking on that one, because it's the dominant heresy of our own day. It's the dominant heresy, is liberal Protestantism. And what liberal Protestantism does, it diminishes the fearsome holiness of God, and it diminishes your and my sin. And so we can kind of get God and us together if we just bring Him down a little bit and bring us up a little bit. Now we can be buddies. And here's what the gospel does. And the more you grow, the bigger that gap gets. And therefore, the bigger your cross gets. Because you're realized as you get to be an old man, how wicked you are by nature. And you also are more and more impressed with how holy and pure and righteous God is. That there is no darkness in Him whatsoever. What right do you have to be in His presence? And these thoughts begin to sometimes just dominate your thinking as you grow in Christ and you realize, this cross is huge. It's bridging a gap that's far greater than I ever imagined before. And therefore, our devotion to Christ is warmer and warmer as we get older because we're realizing with more experience and more knowledge and more Bible reading and more fellowship how great this salvation is and what has been accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ. So that's what John is saying. Well, let's pick it up here with verse, chapter 2, verse 1. He's saying, first of all, he's our advocate. And notice, now John's an old man. He's probably up in his 80s. So he has a right to say, my little children. <laughs> no. Hey, look, those of you who are 80s, if you want to say to me every once in a while, son, that just feels so good. It's, a, it's been a long time since anybody said son to me. Uh, you younger guys, just appreciate it. It won't last long. You know, if someone's going to call you a son, what a wonderful thing. And to come under the care of an old guy like this. And John's saying, my little children, just listen to me just a minute. And he was an old man. He said, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The purpose for this letter is to help you live a righteous life. I'm not trying to encourage you in sin by telling you more about Jesus. I'm not not telling you about forgiveness so you go out there and sin some more and draw on your bank account. I'm telling you this so that you won't sin, but... If anyone does sin, or you could say when everyone does sin, we have an advocate. Now, you know if you get in, in, <laughs> in tough straits uh, in the, with the law, you better get yourself a good lawyer and there's some in this room. You're going to find the best lawyer you can get because you're not going to be doing any talking in that courtroom unless that lawyer tells you to. You just need an advocate, someone who knows what he's doing in the court. He knows the way the court works. He knows that judge knows exactly how to appeal to him, knows how to appeal to a jury, knows how to present a case, knows how to counter all the arguments of the, of the claimant uh, who, who's making claims against you. He's got all that. He's good advocate. You just sit quiet and watch the fireworks. Well, that's nothing compared to the court in heaven. When you get there, you have the perfect advocate whose dad is on the throne. <laughs> and he's saying, Father, you remember that I bore the wrath of, of our justice on my own body on Calvary's tree. And this is one of the ones for whom I paid. Case closed. That's it. You've got an advocate. He advocates for your justification and He's advocating for your blessing even as I preach to you. He's advocating for you. Do you have any better advocate than Jesus Christ Himself, the Son of God, who took on flesh, He understands you completely, He knows what you're going through, and He is God, appealing to God. That's your advocacy. So John says, don't go for this other stuff, these cheap tricks to try to make you feel better in your religious life. Stick with the gospel. You've got an advocate. Not only that, uh, uh, with the Father, but look at verse 2. He is our propitiation. He's our advocate and He is our propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is an important word. Uh, It's it's a Greek word translating a Hebrew word. The Hebrew really is the altar covering, the mercy seat on the offering. So we're told Jesus is the mercy seat where all the blood was spilt. The Greek word means to satisfy... To propitiate is to satisfy. Now, in pagan theology, your offerings were propitiating the gods. And as I said earlier, in pagan theology, it was manipulative. You're just trying to please the gods and to get them to cooperate with you. You're trying to manipulate them to propitiate them. But here, and for that reason, almost every liberal scholar will not use the word propitiation because they say, oh, it's primitive. This is the way the pagans operate. Our God is not like that. Of course our God is not like that. But He is righteously indignant. He's not capricious. And He's not narcissistic. He is righteous and just. And therefore His justice must be propitiated. And it's the right thing to do. You're not manipulating God. You're satisfying a virtue of the living God. And He is to be propitiated. So you'll notice that the work on Calvary's cross was not primarily to influence you. The work on the cross primarily influences God Himself. Now the interesting thing is, is God is the one who provided the propitiation. He's the one who sent His Son. He's the one who's prepared the sacrifice. And He, God incarnate, is the one who makes the sacrifice but it is done in order to satisfy the justice of the living God so that He is not winking at sin when He forgives you. There's a full payment demanded. That's how you get in. God sustains His justice and He exercises His mercy and grace at the same time. That's what propitiation means. We're satisfying God, which then morally allows Him to be gracious to you because the payment is in fact made. So John is saying that he's writing to us so that when we sin, we realize we have an advocate and we have a sacrifice. The advocate is pleading with God on the basis of the propitiation, the sacrifice. So John is saying, what else do you want? What else do you need? What other fables or myths do you need to create? What other other ethical system do you want? You're not satisfied with the one from 4,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago? You want a new ethical system, something that our modern society considers suitable for such an intelligent and sophisticated group as you are? Or do you want an ethical system that came from a God of light who in your sin, He provided an advocate and a propitiation for it and set you free from the burden of all the iniquity? Which do you want? It's a choice you have to make. And John is pleading with his people to make the right choice. Now, quickly, look at the last part of this. And this is when we delve into this first long exhortation. We're only dealing with the first part of it in these four verses, three, four, five, and 6. True believers keep His commandments. John is saying you cannot dismiss ethics from doctrine. And once again, the liberal Protestants want to say, well, we're not real sure about the doctrine. So if we're not really sure about the doctrine, you know, God's inscrutable and you can't really know Him. We're all just going through a maze. And your spiritual exercise is really just walk through the maze and think. Just walk and think. And in those contemplations and that journey upon which you're traveling, you'll find yourself. Great, found myself. That's walking in the darkness. Get me out of this crap and give me the Word of God. And let me see light. And let me find Christ. Let me be real. Let me face the truth. That's what John is saying. Face the truth. And the truth will lead you to light and joy. And you, as long as you're down here just acting as though God can't be known in any possible way, because He's so inscrutable, God is inscrutable. But when He reveals something about Himself, take what He reveals. It's presumptuous for you to say you know something about God that He hadn't revealed. That's presumptuous. But it's also presumptuous for you to say you can't know something when He's made it known. You're saying that your standards for knowledge are greater than what he's, what he's abiding by himself and when he reveals himself. And this is what's going on with so much of broader Christendom. So John's saying, true believers keep his commandments. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And he gives two positive assurances. And here they are. First of all, rebellious worshipers are hypocrites. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So they're just, just hypocrites. Secondly, obedience brings blessing. And here are the two assurances. First of all, when you walk with Him, the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps His word in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now, that doesn't mean it becomes perfect. What it means is it's going in the direction of perfection. For example, in parliamentary procedure, when you're amending a motion, you're perfecting the motion. That doesn't mean you come up with a perfect bill at the end. It just means you're trying to improve the motion while you amend it. Your life's being amended. And that means your life's being perfected. And the love that you have for God is being perfected as you walk with Him. And that's what you want. That's what you want with your marriage. You want to perfect that love. You want it to... You've been married 30 years. It ought to be a deeper love. It ought to be a deeper uh, intimacy that you have with your wife. And that love ought to be perfected. Same way with the Lord. And if you walk with Him, it will be. And then secondly, our assurance is strengthened. Notice what he says in these last two, verse verse and a half. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if you want to be assured, trust and obey. You say, really? Just trust and obey? That's it. You got it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the simple revelation of Your Word, which has complex implications in our lives. We pray that we may receive the simple message to trust You and obey You, and that we may take that simple message and apply it to the complexity of our lives everywhere that we're going today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.